Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everyone. Steve, I know you've heard of the Salem Witchcraft Trials, correct? Absolutely. Have you ever heard of the Ohio Witchcraft Trial? No, never heard of that one. Yeah, well, there was one, and only one, recorded in the state of Ohio. But in addition to that, there were at least two other documented witch hunting efforts, including one that came terrifyingly close to seeing a woman executed. So that's tonight's story. Three stories, actually, all taking place between 1805 and 1814. Notably, all of this is more than a century after Salem and all of that other witchcraft hoo-ha. And yet, some people continue to slip through the cracks of enlightenment. Our first story takes place in 1805 in Bethel. At that time, a newly platted community in Claremont County, perhaps a half hour's drive from Cincinnati. And something terrifying is happening at the Hildebrand house. The couple has two teenage daughters, and one of them, Fanny, is in the throes of something her parents don't understand. She's writhing on the ground, pulling her hair and screaming. Fanny soon recovers from that fit. The Hildebrands don't understand why it stopped any more than they know why it started, but it's not her last. The fits return several more times, mostly at night, as if darkness is bringing the affliction. With no better explanation, the Hildebrands convince themselves Fanny is being attacked by some kind of entity. And they had an idea of how to stop it. During one of Fanny's fits, a family member held open a large bag filled with Lindsay Woolsey. You know what Lindsay Woolsey is? I have no idea. I had to look that one up too. It's a type of woven fabric that was common in colonial America. But I couldn't find anything that suggested it had some particular ties to witchcraft. Still, the Hildebrands thought so, and so they recited some sort of incantation that was meant to trap the entity in the bag. And when Fanny's fit ended, they took the bag to the porch, whacked it to pieces using a sharp axe, then swept everything into a pile and burned it for good measure. Surprisingly, this did not work. The next night, Fanny had yet another fit. And so the Hildebrands decided it wasn't some disembodied entity. It must have been a witch. And they had a pretty good candidate in mind. At the corner, there lived an old lady with a black cat. Her name was Mrs. Nancy Evans, who, from what I can tell, did no one any harm, which related or otherwise. 
She lived where state routes 125 and 232 intersect, in a little cabin with a garden that she tended. Her only companion was a black cat, which the Hildebrand sisters had seen her talking to. Now, look, I don't live alone, and I talk to my cat all the time. I can only imagine the conversations this little old lady was probably carrying on with her only housemate. But the Hildebrands read something sinister into it and decided the black cat was a familiar, which is witch talk for a supernatural entity that serves the dark activities of its master. They told their neighbors of their suspicions and ultimately called on Constable Santney to file a complaint. Constable Santney talked to the village's justice of the peace, a man only identified as Squire Clark, and Clark agreed it was time to end this before it really got out of hand. Mrs. Evans was at the very least being side-eyed by all the local residents, and at worst was being shunned. Squire Clark couldn't find any Ohio law dealing with witches. Remember, the state was just a couple years old. But he did remember hearing a tradition that held if a witch were weighed against a Bible, the Bible would decide the truth of the matter. If the person being accused was a witch, the Bible would be heavier because truth would outweigh the perpetrator's lies and denial. If the person accused was innocent, then he or she would weigh more than the Bible because they were telling the truth. Now, you see what's happening here? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm innocent. I'm going to venture that this is a modern-day twist on a witchcraft test because, quite obviously, nobody is going to meet this test. <laughs> I mean, the Bible is never going to outweigh a person. And I'm betting Squire Clark knew that because he arranged for a public examination to take place the next day at noon. Now, there are two accounts of where this test was carried out. One account said the scale was built in a pond in Mrs. Evans' own backyard. That makes no sense to me why someone would build a scale in the pond unless they knew she was old and since they were absolutely certain that she would tip the scale and crash down, it would be better for her fragile bones to hit the water than hard ground. Total guess on my part. The other account said it was held in the public square so everyone could witness it. That sounds more likely, so we're going to go with that. Anyway, a heavy post was set into the ground, and a strong plank was placed across the top with a sling fixed to either end. And the sling on one end was a Bible. The sling on the other end formed a sort of swing where Mrs. Evans was told to sit. Men held the plank on top of the post steady until both Bible and accused witch were in place. Reportedly, the Justice of the Peace formally announced, Nancy Evans, thou art weighed against the Bible to try thee against all witchcraft and diabolical practices. (laughs) And then the Justice told the men to release the pressure on the board, after which Mrs. Evans immediately crashed to the ground and the Bible flew several feet into the air. Probably what everybody expected, I'm thinking. Mrs. Evans was proven innocent, and the law was satisfied. It was said that Mrs. Evans was a willing participant in all of this, that she pitied her backward neighbors and hoped it would bring them peace of mind to go through the process. Meanwhile, just in case she's stuffing her face with cake. (laughs) 
I'm putting on a couple extra pounds in case they find that one Bible that's made of solid gold. Right. <laughs> oh, still, Bethel might not have been quite the place it used to be for old Lady Evans. She moved away. She went to Brown County afterward and finished her life there. The Hildebrand family moved as well. I'm guessing their own reputation did not uh, survive this affair. Now, this story has been told by various Ohio history books, including a history of Claremont County that was published in 1880. In retelling the story over the years, many people have wondered if perhaps Fanny Hildebrand suffered from epilepsy. You know, that makes perfect sense to me. This next story makes no sense and ends up with the death of an innocent. The year was 1814 in an area of Cincinnati called Mill Creek Valley. And there lived a wealthy and respected farmer who raced some fine horses. Unfortunately, a bout of distemper, which is a very dangerous bacterial infection, was killing them off. So this is the Cincinnati area again. Yeah. Which witches love that area. Uh, Apparently. Same area, and I'm wondering if uh, you know witches. They like they have to form a coven, so you got to have more than one, right? That's true. <laughs> well, after he lost a few horses, he decided something paranormal was to blame, and he started asking about for advice on how to divine if a witch lived in the area. Someone told him one way to out the witch was to boil certain herbs, then add pins and needles to the mixture, and then look around and see if anyone in the vicinity grew uncomfortable, because the pins and needles would cause the witch physical pain. And so he did. And while the concoction boiled, he walked to the door of his farmhouse and looked about his land, and just then... He spied his own daughter-in-law, who lived with his son in a cabin on the property, rushing to the well to draw water. Now, this is a pretty routine act, except the farmer became convinced that her movements at that moment was no coincidence and that she looked at being some sort of distress. He could not be dissuaded of the notion, and he ordered his son to remove his family from the property. So which gone, right? Which gone? Not, because he lost another horse, and he decided there must be another witch in the area. (laughs) It's unclear how he identified her, but he cast his accusations at a woman who lived some eight miles from the farm. She was talking to her cat too much. Uh, No, but she was sick, and I'm wondering if the farmer thought that his pins and needles had worked on her and made her ill. Now, the farmer's name is lost to history. I could not find his name, but this poor woman's name is not. Her name was Mrs. Garrison, and she was pretty much on her deathbed. This is when the farmer decided to use the second piece of advice people had given him. He was told, make a silver bullet, shoot it into one of his sick horses. Yeah, it would kill the horse, But the witch as well, because the witch was physically tied to the spell she was using against his horses. The farmer followed through, making a silver bullet, loading it into a weapon, and shooting one of his brood mares dead. A short time after this, Mrs. Garrison, whatever she was suffering from, succumbed to it. And that led the farmer to feel vindication 
about his accusation. That's right. That's right. Witchcraft. So there you go. <laughs> there were one witch proven, right? right? Right. Now, the third story tonight is the one where a poor woman would have lost her life if not for the brave actions of a man in town. It happened in 1819 in Wapakoneta. And do we know who was born in Wapakoneta? Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong. Again, the near first Cincinnati. man on the moon. That's <laughs> right. You know, uh, like I told you, Coven, they all have to be down there in That's the same right. area, right? Uh, so in 1819, there were still Indians living in town, Shawnees, and a group of peace loving Quakers who had crossed the Allegheny Mountains years before in order to work with the Indians and the frontiersmen. Now, and don't confuse Quakers with the Puritans. The Puritans were the ones who put witches to death. The Quakers are like totally peace loving, right. you know, great people. Make Love great, the Quakers. Make great Love oats. It. Yeah. yeah, make great oats. Now, witchcraft is not something that existed in Indian society before the white man, but they adopted many of the white man's ways, including some of their superstitions. And the Shawnees of Wapakoneta were convinced they had themselves a witch. Her name was Polly Butler. Her father was General Richard Butler, an Indian trader before the Revolutionary War, who had married a Shawnee woman. The couple had Polly and a son together. But Butler was killed in 1791 during a battle with a hostile group of Indians, and his Shawnee wife raised their children with a local tribe. Now, I'll get back to her in a second. I mentioned the Quakers had settled in this area as well, and their leader was a man named Isaac Harvey. He had moved his family to Wapakoneta to manage a local mill that benefited the Indians. And as a result, he had earned their respect and made friends with many of the chiefs in the area. One day, Harvey visited an Indian that he often brought medicine and food to and found a disturbing sight. The man was in his house, lying face down on the floor, his bare back covered in cuts. And standing over him was an Indian that history calls simply the prophet. I know you know the prophet, right? Yes. That was the brother of the famous Tecumseh. Harvey asked the prophet what was going on. And the prophet said the man was being tormented by a witch and the cuts were to release the affliction in his body. Makes sense. Uh, And this wasn't the first time the prophet had been part of a witch hunt. In June of 1810, the prophet had ordered the execution of an old Wyandot chief named Leatherlips. Oh. It took place on the banks of the Scioto in what is now part of Franklin County. And he was hit in the head with an axe, after which his killers watched him writhe in agony until drops of sweat gathered on his face and neck in what they considered proof of his guilt. Yeah. Only then did they inflict additional blows to kill him. Okay. How brutal. Anyway, seeing what the prophet was doing to this poor man incensed Harvey. He ordered the prophet from the house and dressed the sick man's wounds. The next night, Harvey was at home when he heard a woman's voice crying for help on the other side of his front door. He opened it to see an Indian woman and her little girl. The woman was Polly Butler. Since Polly had only ever lived with the Indians, Harvey needed an interpreter to understand her. He took Polly and her daughter to the blacksmith's son to find out what she wanted. 
and that's when he learned that the local Shawnee chiefs had held a special council and determined Polly was responsible for bewitching the old man that Harvey had found with the prophet the previous night. Harvey fully expected the chiefs to come looking for her, so he took Polly and her daughter back to his home and fashioned for them a hiding spot by pulling two beds together in an upper room and covering them with a single bedspread, but leaving room between the two beds for the woman and her daughter to fit. Harvey was taking his own life into his hands. If the Indians were determined, there was nothing to stop them from making Harvey pay a capital price for harboring a witch. And sure enough, the Indians came calling. They searched his house, even looking over the bedroom with a large but otherwise innocent-looking bed. They left, but then sent back Chief Weosaka, who was good friends with Harvey. Weosaka tried to explain why it was important that this woman be found and killed. Harvey lectured him on the cruelty of putting people to death over superstitions. Weosaka left frustrated and disappointed, and an hour later, he was back again. This time, he told Harvey he had to meet with the chiefs, since they now suspected him of helping the woman escape. Harvey brought along the blacksmith's son again for his interpreter, and he met with the council. He told the chiefs if they were determined to murder someone, then he would sacrifice himself in place of the woman. Weosaka immediately stood next to his friend and told the chiefs instead of Harvey they could take his life. The chiefs were astonished, but ultimately won over, and one by one they relinquished their desire for blood and took Harvey's hand, declaring friendship. Harvey extracted from the now-friendly chiefs a promise that they would accept Polly back into the fold, and they did. Oh, nice. Yeah. Much of this story was preserved in a document that was dated October 17, 1853. It was written by John Johnston, the government's Indian agent in the Dayton area. And Johnston said Harvey not only saved the life of Polly Butler, but his diplomacy and cool-headedness had impressed the chiefs to the point that they never accused anyone of witchcraft again. Nice. I had to look up this uh, Isaac Harvey. Yeah, he's got a Wikipedia page. He's a very big deal. There's a statue to him at Wilmington uh, at the college there showing him and his wife walking, and it's commemorating a time when they went to Washington to meet with Lincoln because they were big-time abolitionists as well. That's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-size Ohio Mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion 
and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.